measure all those things. And we're at this interesting place in baseball now where now the, now the kind of debate is as an athlete, how much do you need to know to perform well? Do you need to know all those things or, or do we need to have the athletic trainers know hey, and, and come find you and say, Hey, your sleep numbers are down. Is something happening at home? Um, or, or does the player need to know that? Because like I said about knowing the information, right? If I know that I'm not, if I have that band on and I, I show up and I look at, I check my reading and I find out that I'm at 72%, like what kind of mental toll is that going to take on me when I go out to perform? If I know that this thing is saying that I'm not as good as I'm supposed to be. And so... Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I'm excited to be speaking with John Baker. He's a former Major League Baseball catcher, played for a number of your favorite teams, the Marlins, the Padres, and most recently the Chicago Cubs. And now he's actually a mental coach for the world champion Cubs. So along with his personal interests, with ketogenic diet and jujitsu, he's an experienced coach for famous elite athletes about the mind-body connection and peak performance. So absolutely a topics that us at Human and our community is very passionate about. So welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's like you said, I'm, I'm about, you know, my job is helping people optimize uh, their lives away from high performance, but then also inside of high performance. So uh, it's an honor for me to be on with people that kind of approach life the same way. So thank you for having me. Awesome. So I'm sure we'll touch upon a number of different topics, but I think it might make sense to start off with your personal baseball career and and, and in your journey from, you know, when did you realize that, that hey, you could, you could cut into major leagues um, and, and, and that story? Uh, never, uh, never. I never realized, <laughs> I never realized that I was always looking over my shoulder. Um, you know, I was, uh, I'm a very different case than a lot of people. Um, you know, I grew up with uh, pretty bright parents, both Stanford educated, and I was very focused on school as a kid. Uh, and I just loved, um, baseball. Uh, my, well, my dad loved baseball. And as a result, as the oldest son in the family, um, it's really where we spent a lot of time together. It was my connection to my father at an early age. Uh, we played a lot, a lot of baseball practice. And from my dad, who was a psychology major at Stanford, got to, got to train under skin, um, excuse me, under uh, Zimbardo who did the Stanford prison yes. experiment. He was there in the seventies. Um, and, uh, it was the kind of rise of behavioralism. So he, my dad often jokes that he didn't raise me. He trained me. <laughs> so I'm like, man, dad, you make me sound like a dog when you say that. But, um, in a really positive way, I think, you know, there was a lot of kind of trials and stuff that I went through as a child. Um, that as I look back on them at like a 28 year old, when I was playing in the major leagues, man, they, those lessons really made a lot of sense. I used to think I was getting picked on when I was a kid, but I realized as an adult that, uh, I was kind of emotionally bulletproof to the things other people would say to me. And not that my dad was awful, but he held me to a high standard um, and he pushed me to play baseball and to do school and to kind of be multifaceted in my interests, um, which was a great childhood and a great upbringing for me. Uh, and I was a walk on, uh, ended up walking on at UC Berkeley. Um, the coach there thought that I had a chance to hit. So I went and did the walk on tryouts. 
I made the team uh, and I was just excited for the priority registration. My plan as an 18 year old was to go to a good college, um, get a degree in political science or business, go to law school after that. And then I guess spend the rest of my life suing people like an asshole. And <laughs> I'm so fortunate that uh, as I matured, I was a better hitter than I thought I ever was as a kid. I batted seventh on my high school team. I was not the best player there. In fact, I can, I can pretty honestly say in my entire baseball career from the time I was uh, five in, 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 in T-ball, um, that might have been the last time I was the best player on the team. Um, every year after that, there was always somebody else uh, that did better. And, and I think through my kind of just drive and, and my love for practice and training and, and, and improvement and mastery, um, I went from a kid that was a decent athlete, but not great by any means, to somebody that grinded their way through college baseball and got a chance to play every day. And by the time I was a junior, I won the batting title in our conference in the Pac-10. Uh, and then I got drafted in the fourth round by the A's. And it was pretty much a shock to everybody that had ever seen me play before that um, until that last year. And then I suffered through six and a half years in the minor leagues before I got called up. Um, I thought I was going to get up there quickly. I did great for the first couple seasons. I thought, oh man, baseball is easy. And one of the real lessons that I learned in life is that the moment that I feel like I have it figured out, it's time for me to reassess. It's time for me to reassess. That is my, that is, that is kind of the, the whole point of hubris. When you think you know, it, when you think you know, when you think everything is bulletproof, when you think you've got your, your, your systems all in place and, the, and, and life is optimized, it's time to recheck those things and make sure that everything's intentional. And I hit a snag in my career, um, got some bad information on uh, some contact lenses and it set me back, but I eventually got to the big leagues get there, uh, do great for the first couple seasons there. And then one day my arm starts hurting in 2010 and I end up missing a year, uh, having a complete reconstruction of my elbow, have to make a team again as a backup. And, and I, I think I extended my career about three years because of, uh, after that, I ended up playing all the way for the Cubs in 2014, the minor leagues with the Mariners in 15. So got drafted in 2002, played 14 professional seasons. Uh, played in the Dominican Republic. Baseball took me to uh, trips to Iraq and Haiti after the earthquake. Uh, took me to uh, Holland and Belgium to do clinics. Took me all over the world. Took me to the Dominican Republic to live and play to kind of reestablish myself as a player. Um, and that, spend some time. I mean, I don't know very many people that kind of grew up in the California suburbs that went down and spent a couple months living in a third world country and playing baseball and really understanding Latin American culture, Dominican culture, a whole lot better, uh, from that experience. Um, so yeah, uh, not the best player by any means ever. Um, but somebody that just really enjoyed that, that pursuit of mastery. I mean, there is nothing more difficult than getting a hit in a major league game. There's nothing more difficult than that. And, and further, it feels so good when we hit something hard. You know, like, uh, it's like our, that's like our frustration response sometimes is to slam a fist or, or punch a punching bag, man, it feels good. Now, if we, you combine that into, um, something that you've been practicing since you were five years old and then doing it at the highest level, um, and, and you get a base hit. And I, I always joke, it's funny that we call it a hit because it's like a hit of drugs. The moment <laughs> it happens, you just get lighter and it courses through yeah. your system. So, um, you know, I was a I was a baseball addict. I think that's the best way to describe my career. Yeah, I mean, I think neurologically, just the stimulus of seeing the pitch come and having that nerve impulse go down to your muscles to the, to swing. I mean, it's most humans cannot react that fast. So it's you know, it literally, it's a hit. I can imagine that it is one of the literally the hardest things that humans do on a consistent basis. Absolutely, and then one day it's gone. 
it's gone. You know, it's gone. I think that that kind of me handling, um, my kind of break from that addiction, you know, me being in recovery as a regular person, what the thing that I realized most is that we have as people, we have generally a negative interpretation of the word stress. We think that we think that we, 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 we feel like uh, stress is debilitating. In fact, that's the, the, the Sean Acher study out of Harvard um, of the two mindsets. You know, some people, your best bet is to think that stress is enhancing. Anytime I'm in a stressful situation, when I, if I'm in touch, if I'm mindful enough about the way I feel physically, I'm in touch with my body, I can recognize those sensations, the, the quicker heartbeat, the sweaty palms. If in those moments I can stop and say, well, shit, this is why I do it. This is why I'm here. This is why we're here. This is what it means to be fully alive. I've tapped into this kind of autonomic nervous state where, where, where adrenaline is coursing through me. Um, if we look at that as a gift or an opportunity, we're much more likely to succeed when we look at that, like a, like a negative, right? Like, Oh no, how, how am I supposed to perform in this context? That's hard. Well, I lost the opportunity for those moments. And, and that's what I missed the most. It wasn't actually playing baseball. It wasn't actually getting a hit. What I really missed was that nervous feeling before it all happened. That moment. Um, it's like feeling alive, right? Like, like, yeah. like life is clear. There's like a mission and it, that nervousness is, is like truly feeling alive. Absolutely. And I think so much of us are searching for that. And and the other part of this and what I've learned and, and I understand kind of from psychology now is that if we don't give ourselves those opportunities, we don't actively select and choose uh, the, the times where we can be stressed out like on purpose, man, given that, given some space, our brains are amazing. And the stories that we tell are incredibly intricate about how bad we are and how much we suck and, and why we're stupid. Um, but we'll give ourselves, we'll give it to ourselves. We have a you know, go back evolutionarily, right? You know, we have this ability to recognize patterns and something pops out. I'm supposed to jump under the table, uh, you know, cause it might be a saber toothed tiger. We're still wired for, we're still wired for that stuff. And if we don't, you know, and, and in, in this space that we live now, you know, we've never had better access to great food, um, amazing technology. Everything is easier. Everything is, you know, we can, I can, instead of having to worry about spending five days being really strict on my diet, right? I can get some ketones from you <laughs> and I can, I can kick myself into a six right away, right away. Um, we didn't used to have those things, right? And this is what Eric Fromm talks about with this age of anxiety that we live in with this, despite all these rises in ease and comfort and technology and food, we are more stressed out, we are more anxious, we are more depressed as a human species than we've ever been. And it's my belief that we don't have to be that way. That if we're, if we're, if, if we study ourselves inside enough and we go out and we challenge ourselves, we find things to do that are equal parts exciting and scary, then that kind of takes the place uh, of that psychological stress that we need. And, and for me, after playing, that's how I found jujitsu. I realized, oh, I need something that's really scary. Well, you know what sucks is when somebody holds you down and chokes you. You You're know, right. like that's not, that's not fun to deal with. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's another one. It's another sport that takes a long time to master. So I've, I've kind of reveled in that. And, and that's what got me into this line of work with the Cubs is kind of coming to these realizations that, that we need stress. We need to be, we need to feel freaked out, that it is good. Uh, it's, it's the, I used to have this conversation when pitchers as a catcher, you know, pitchers would make their major league debut and they would come in from the bullpen and 
man, I could see it. I could see their heart beating in their chest. I could see kind of the, the eyes going back and forth and they're looking, we call it like the, the third deck shock. They've never seen 50,000 people all looking at them at the same time. And I would just cue them. I would go, Hey, do you feel those feelings? Do you feel your heart beating? Fuck yeah, man, we're alive. This is why, <laughs> this is why we do this. Right. Like, Take a deep breath, embrace it, because there's not a lot of people in the world that get to experience this at this level, and we're here doing it. This is why we put all that practice in. And I had some great success with guys uh, kind of just immediately switching. And you know, I, I always felt comfortable catching major league debuts. And now, um, as a mental skills coach for uh, you know these these best athletes in the world, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. It's about looking inside finding out what makes you happy, finding out what you want to do, finding out the moments where you can kind of flip the, the, the stress response into a positive for you. Um, and then going about life in the best way possible. Yeah, that's absolutely interesting. There's this notion in psychology, Yerkes-Dodson curve, where if you're understressed, understimulated, you don't perform well. If you're overstimulated, overstressed, right? Like the rookie, you see in the third deck, you're freaking yourself out. And it sounds like you're really priming people to the peak state of stimulus where you are healthily stressed, but that stress pushes you to perform at a high, very high peak level. I mean, I, I think just hearing your, your, your thoughts there, it sounds like you've you know, I think you're being humble that you weren't, you know, one of uh, a, a great athlete, obviously to, to, to cut it in the big leagues, you got to be a phenomenal athlete, but it really sounds like you thought your way through your career. I mean, you really sounded like your mental sharpness, your mental self-awareness was a key asset for you as you developed as a player. Um, would you say that that's true? I think it's, I think there's give and take to be honest, because um, you know, uh, for every like positive thing that I worked out mentally, again, like everybody else, uh, I, I was also able to give myself, um, problems that weren't there, you know, like over adjustments, um, uh, overthinking the training. Um, and, and when you, when you are conscious about your intentional practice, sometimes you can put yourself in a state where you feel like I can't perform if I don't get to do uh, certain things. So, yeah, I had to balance it definitely. But I do think that um, uh, being as thoughtful as I was about my practice and my career allowed me this opportunity, which was when I got to look back um, after I was done playing, after I didn't have a job anymore and nobody wanted me on their baseball team. Right. Like they, the baseball took the jersey away from me looking back on it it was a pretty easy transition out because when I looked back on my career, I looked back at my numbers and I went, now they might not be the best numbers of all time, but that was the best I could have done. Um, that whole time with the information that I had, uh, putting it into practice, the things that I had learned, um, I don't feel like I could have done any better. And that kind of contentment, um, is all I could ever hope for from my career. Yeah. I'm curious to dive into the mental skills coaching, the mental aspect of baseball. So it seems to be a relatively recent phenomenon where this is treated as a serious discipline. So I, I, I don't know if you know Eric Potterat, who who uh, runs a Dodgers program. I, I actually met him through uh, one of my good friends who was a retired Navy SEAL admiral. And I know Eric used to be the fourth psychologist for Naval Special Warfare Group 1. So he was a psychologist for all the Navy SEALs on the West Coast. And it sounds like there's more of these programs in, in the big leagues. Was this, is this, I'm, I'm sure that, I, I presume, I, I'm not, I don't know, that you didn't have this kind of training and support when you were coming up in the big leagues. Uh, I'm curious to, to hear about your story around, you know, why do you think that this is a area of interest now 
what have been the te technological or scientific shifts to make ment the mental aspect of the game so important? Well, I think that this is a this is a really deep conversation because what we're talking about is how people have changed, how we consume information and how we learn. You know, we have all this technology, but and it's great, but it's it's resulted in kind of a shortening of the human tension span. Um, it's resulted in human communication sometimes going through uh, uh, through a medium instead of face to face. And so when we look at, for example, our younger players, um, they communicate differently than the 37, 38, 39 year old uh, players that I came up playing with. Right. We communicate differently um, and their their social skills are not bad. They're just not trained um, like like ours were trained. And so what we find is that we have a and we have a group of people that is experiencing more stress than they were the same age group of people 10 years ago. So if you look at like the American Psychological Association's numbers on stress in the workplace and you find out in 2014 it was like maybe maybe 15 or 16% of the working population was reporting like I can't deal levels of stress by 2018 that was over by 2016 that was over 20% and by 2031 i think the prediction is that we're going to be at 50% of the of the us workforce is going to be at i can't leave, i can't deal levels of stress yeah. now what the question is why right that was the first question we asked well why is this happening well i think technology for all its benefits has a big has a big say in this because if you think about one of the examples i use is uh, webmd is a great example of this right um, the ability to choke on information that we don't understand. It's out there everywhere. It also kind of explains the, the rise of fake news, right? If I can't determine what's real or not because all of this content is coming in from seemingly reliable sources, um, we're, we're getting to the place that if ignorance is bliss, the, the environment that we live in right now is the opposite, right? Information, especially a flood of information, is stress. And so understanding that our players are like that and then trying to figure out ways to mitigate, mitigate those concerns and get people back to being more human and less robot. Um, you also add in as well uh, this the, the helicopter parenting that the millennial generation experienced where everybody all the time is making every decision for them. You're going to go here. You're going to swing at this time. You're going to go to this practice. And when I go see, I used to go see my nephew's games and I'd watch the parents. Um, he's in college now, but I would watch the parents a couple of years ago at his high school baseball games, just screaming the instructions that they were getting from like the private hitting coaches at the kids while they were playing. And I thought, man, at some point we need to figure out how to do things ourselves. We need to figure out how to work this out on our own. We need to figure out, this kid needs to figure out what makes him happy. It's not, it's not your responsibility to tell him what to do. So you add all these things in and what we have in our organization as a result, the, the positive side of helicopter parenting is that, man, we got the most coachable kids of all time. I mean, you tell them to stand on one foot and they're like, okay, right now. Yeah. Well, I'm batting. Okay. No problem. Like they'll, they'll do it. Um, but they're also not looking kind of internally and trying to work it out themselves as much because if they have a question about hitting, all I got to do is this, I just pick this up, right? I pick up this phone. I, I, I make a little Google search. I got the answer. I got the answer right there. As a result, I also feel like by just doing it a couple times, it's going to become part of my kind of ingrained habitual routine. Um, and we have to explain to these guys that it's going to take 18 months. So understanding kind of what the population is like, I think kind of helps set up what we do and, and, and why we do it. And truthfully, you know, we do, we use all this technology with the Cubs to measure everything from how fast their arm is moving to the amount of sleep that they're getting, um, to things like whoop bands to measure per performance um, and, and their states of readiness. Like we measure all those things and we're at this interesting place in baseball now where now the, now the kind of debate is 
as an athlete, how much do you need to know to perform well? Do you need to know all those things or, or do we need to have the athletic trainers know hey, and, and come find you and say, hey, your sleep numbers are down. Is something happening at home? Um, or, or does the player need to know that? Because like I said about knowing the information, right? If I know that I'm not, if I have that band on and I, I show up and I look at, I check my reading and I find out that I'm at 72%, like what kind of mental toll is that going to take on me when I go out to perform? If I know that this thing is saying that I'm not as good as I'm supposed to be. And so, uh, you know, I, re- I don't know if you've read, um, Andy Galpin, um, and Mackenzie's book, uh, unplugged about learning how to kind of more at more, uh, efficiently use all of this technology that comes in. So we have this state, all of this, all this technology, we have all these, all this data and analytics too, about, uh, the speed of the bat and how high the ball is supposed to come off the bat for the best possible result and how fast guys need to swing. We talk about launch angle. So we've never been able to measure and predict baseball more accurately than we do now. But a lot of that information now is filtering into the players and we're trying to figure out what do we give them for them to be able to perform? And then what are the results of those things when they do overthink things? And that's another big part of our job. So we, we meet these demands, um, a very specific ways. Uh, for if I was going to kind of describe our philosophy on life with the Cubs, um, we are very big into stoicism. Marcus Aurelius. Um, we use. We in fact we handed out. I legitimately handed so you're, out. Are having the people having your players read meditations? Oh yeah. Well, well, no, no, they're not reading meditations. I get okay. to read meditations. I give okay. them the uh, the the millennial version of Marcus Aurelius meditations. There's two books by Ryan Holiday that we use. Um, the obstacle is the way, and ego is the enemy. Because and we use the Daily Stoic too. Because the way that those books are written are um, kind of how this this generation consumes information. Uh, you know, like you never want to do anything more than four and a half minutes with these guys um, because. That's kind of when attention span wanes. And so the Daily Stoic is three paragraphs in a quote. And those other books are like three pages in a quote um, in a systematic way about understanding Stoicism. What does understanding Stoicism mean? Man's first job. First job, determine the things you can control and the things you can't control and spend all your energy on the latter. Right. And so instead of just saying those things, we have them write it out in the very beginning of spring training. This is where I ru- this is where I ruminate. Um, and this is where this is this is where I ruminate on things that I, that are outside of my control. Well, this is where I this is me fo- me choosing to focus on the things that I do have a say over. Like they don't have a say over which team that the front office puts them on. Uh, but they do have a say over nailing their prep and their routines and their diets and their sleep. They have a say over those things. So you're in, these are in your control. That's the first week of spring training for us. Let's nail those things. Um, then we move to, we start talking about happiness, um, which I think is strange for people to hear a lot of the time. You know, we don't talk about confidence. We talk about self-compassion. Um, we don't talk about being tough. We talk about being happy, uh, more often because these kids are tough, man. Anybody that makes it to professional baseball, they're tough. Um, they play hurt. Uh, they don't say anything about their injuries. They try to get onto the field. Like these kids are strong kids, man. Um, and I, and I got a lot of respect for them. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we, we, we like to push happiness over the horizon. Well, if I do this, if I, if I get this money, if I get this thing, if I get this notoriety, if I get this outcome, then I'm going to be happy. Well, you know, the outcome's a coin flip and it doesn't always work out and not because you did anything wrong. Uh, you know, sometimes just that's the way, you know, life isn't fair. This is the way we're work. So start spending your time. If we're, if we're the summary of our perception, um, just start spending your time perceiving things that make you freaking happy. 
Uh, and so, even if you get the outcome, it's no guarantee that like, you don't get out that hedonic treadmill where you just want the bigger and bigger high of the next outcome, anyways. But that's our that's generally our national national natural impulse. And you think about the age group, a lot of these guys when they're you know 16 to 22, I'm sorry, but their brains aren't fully formed yet. Like they don't have the executive function to believe in the in the treadmill, right? So we have to really hammer home, what are the things that you love away from this game that you can focus on when you're away? It might be playing Fortnite all night. Just make sure you got some blue blocking glasses on, right? <laughs> it might be, it might be um, you love to read, you love music, you love this, but let's really explore who you are and what you like so that when you do feel, uh, when you do feel beat up, because man, this is a game of failure, you know, a 70% it's failure a rate. season too. There's a lot of games on the road. A lot of games. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's these guys, these guys reported February 12th and they won't be home until November, hopefully. That's, that's 10 months. It used to be eight months. Now it's 10 months of constant focus and drive and competition. Um, so if they can't find ways to be happy, which leads to kind of that off-field decompression from, from the stress, then they're going to be tough. So that's the second part of it. Then we move to visualization on the micro level. Um, you know, We know the idea of kind of mirror neurons and how if I can see myself doing it through my own eyes enough times, it's like I'm getting real reps and it should be, in, should be able to ingrain those patterns in a little bit faster. Um, and then on the macro level of what is my aim, you know, where do I want to go? Who do I want to represent myself as? What do I want to be? Like, let's start, let's start not, not just as a baseball player, but as a human being and as a person, like what's, what's, what, what are my goals in life? Um, so we get those down. So we start with, these are the things I can control. These are the things that makes me happy. This is where I want to go. Um, and then we move to, uh, being present. This is me doing it in the moment. And so at the beginning and at the first one, when we, when we talk about control, um, we're also talking about awareness. And so that's where we really introduce mindfulness meditation. And then we get to that fourth week again, and, and we're talking about being present. That's where we introduce our body scan meditation because our bodies, uh, only know the present moment. They don't think about the future or the past. So if I can connect to the physical sensations of this body in this moment, I have a better chance of being present. And that's what we need. That's the overwhelming message of the organization when it comes to performance. When you, you know, Joe Madden's famous quote, be present, not perfect. I need you to be you in the moment, not what you think is perfect. I don't need you to do anything different than anything you've ever done before up, up until now. You've already practiced. You've already trained. And when we get into competition towards the end of that, now it's just about you getting out of the way. Figuring out a way in that moment to get out of the way, uh, to let the conscious mind take some time off. Like it already prepped, it's already ready. We don't have to just consciously bring up why we're going to swing or what's going to happen. We just need to be there um, in that moment and open and able to respond to whatever stimulus we, we, we run into. It sounds like all these tools and mindset is applicable to just broad life in general. I mean, it sounds like you're not just building baseball players, you're really building human beings. and. And, 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 and building a framework for them to really foster and grow as, as successful, you know, humans. Well, that's our, that, and that's our intent. That's our, that's our main intention. You know, like when you look at a minor league organization, I think like maybe 5% of these guys play in the major leagues for us. So w when we're talking to these guys about these things, I, we're thinking about life after baseball for sure. We're thinking about life in general and life after baseball for sure. And we're thinking about kind of, you know, workplace environment. Like we want these guys to show up and have a good time because if we're not like, if, if we're going to preach that you need to be happy, but we're not going to set up the environment um, for you to do so, we're not going to give you the tools, then what are we doing as, what are we doing as coaches or instructors or su the baseball support staff? Um, so yeah. And then 
but these things bleed over into performance. Um, I'll use mindfulness as an example, right? So if we're going to talk about mindfulness meditation, the practice that I believe in that I practice every day, um, is I set an intention to focus on one thing. I personally like to use the sensations of my body breathing. So kind of as I inhale, I, I feel my, my ribs expand, my chest might rise a little bit, my stomach pushes out away from my spine, my belly button pushes away from my spine, and I really feel this like big intake of oxygen. And when I exhale, I feel the structure kind of stay the same, but the tissue that, that's around it, it softens, and I just really try to be in every part of that experience without changing it. Now, inevitably, in the second part of a mindfulness meditation, I'm going to get distracted. My mind, if you can't tell already, goes 7,000 miles an hour. <laughs> like I say, it's 7,000 miles an hour. I think of so many things at once, um, which is great for mindfulness practice because it gives me so many opportunities to do the next step, which is to recognize that I'm actually distracted. I'm trying to focus on my breath, but I'm thinking about an at-bat I had 14 years ago for some reason. It just starts to pop up. Oh, I'm, I'm having, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about something that happened in the past. That's okay. That's what I, I tend to do. And the final step, I reorient my attention back to how I originally intended it back to that object, which was my breath. And how many times can I complete that loop in 15 minutes? Okay. Now let's put a guy on the field. He's out on the mound pitching or he's out and he's out on defense playing shortstop. And he just keeps thinking about his last at bat and how he struck out. Right. And it just keeps keeps replaying. And, and the way that these things compound and kind of exponentially get worse is guys think, well, man, I struck out. So I know the statistics. So I know that my batting average is now at this certain place. And I know that my coach told me to do this thing. And so I now know he's disappointed in me and I'm disappointed in myself. And my girlfriend's here and her, I, and she brought her parents to the game and they just saw me suck. And then the next thing you know, the ball's hit to that guy. He misses it because his mind is somewhere else. So by teaching these guys to recognize when they're not thinking about what they intend to think about, th that guy has now a better chance. If he has a good base of mindfulness, he now has a better chance to go, oh, I'm thinking about all of these things that have nothing to do with what's happening right now. Like that's gone. It's, it's no longer part of reality. Um, you know, I, I love the, the, the comment from uh, Bo Burnham, the, uh, the comedian Bo Burnham. He's got a thing he talks about Tomorrow is a relative term. It doesn't exist, but for today, right? So if, if our mind is there or our mind is there where it doesn't need to be, um, I have way less chance of reacting to the ball as it's hit to me in that moment. So they can recognize it, go, oh no, I'm supposed to be focused on this defense. Okay, back into my routine, step into the circle, refocus for this pitch, expect the ball to be hit to me, bam, step out of it again, let my mind go and come back in. And, you know, baseball, there's on average on defense, maybe 150 pitches a game. And so these guys have 150 opportunities to come away from their focus and to step back in and be focused again and come away and step back in, which kind of mimics that mindfulness loop. So it, it works really well for us to kind of instill this program at the ground level, start when they're 16. So by the time they get to 22, 23, 24, and maybe 25, it's, and now it's, they're it's in the big leagues. Yeah. Yeah. They, they got it before their brain was even fully developed. So they think that that's just what you do as opposed to something that for somebody like me, I learned a couple of years ago. That's fascinating. It sounds like you've really pulled together a, a real protocol around all these different aspects from the latest in quantitative technology to really tradition spanning over thousands of years, right? Mindfulness, 
coming from, you know, Zen Buddhism traditions and, and whatnot, but it doesn't have to be, you know, religious in connotation, but also to like Roman emperors, you know, facing the barbarian hordes and, and, and getting through that mindset, reading meditations. I, I think it's fascinating that you've really sort of collated, you know, the tried and true techniques from all across, um, I guess, human experience. I'm curious from the technological perspective, you mentioned visualization. Um, do you use things like VR headsets, AR headsets to help people visualize? Um, I know you mentioned a whoop band, which is a, you know, a, a biometric tracker. What are some of the highlights in terms of tech or gadgets that you've seen to be most successful? So we have um, two neuroscientists on staff that make us proprietary stuff in-house. Uh, and so we, we use at the major league level, um, we have an extensive VR system um, that works with specific regions of the brain to kind of quicken the, the ability to make decisions on the field that, that our major league players use. That's only available to them. Um, we have some other technology that we use as well uh, for um, kind of that same thing uh, throughout the minor leagues. But we're not huge on um, – like for example, with, with meditation, we're not big on uh, on putting anything on people while they're meditating because when they're competing, they can't have any of that stuff on. So we, um, you know, baseball is the kind of game where what we're really trying to teach people a lot of times is that kind of the sweet spot of feel. That feel is different to every single individual, and that's something that, as anybody, you have to find you have to find for yourself. You have to find for yourself. So a lot of the stuff that we do with mental skills, we do it kind of blind or without technology, but we do have that. We also have you, we've messed around with, I don't know if you've seen Icos before. Um, we messed around with that with players. That's kind of a visualization system where you can, you can, you, you watch a VR headset of yourself doing things in slow motion. Um, you, you have some sounds that correspond to it and then you do it then you do it blindfolded and you kind of go through the stuff yourself. And that's when you're really visualizing it from your own eyes. So we've messed around a little bit with enhancing some of that visualization, but, um, not too crazy yet. I imagine, like, I think we're on the bottom of this bell curve of a technological explosion. So I can't imagine it's going to be too far away from us being able to put a VR headset on and being, I mean, we already are on the field to be honest, but to making it look like 100% like reality, I don't think that's very far away. Right. I'm curious, like you mentioned so much about feel and in a lot of my conversations with elite performers, um, there's this line between, you know, the animal instinct, the feel, intuition, you know, you as an athlete on the field or, you know, an operator in, in the battlefield, just having an in, intuitive, instinctual feeling for the game or the, or the mission uh, versus the metrics, the numbers. And it sounds like you as part of the coaching staff now, but you were, you know, previously a player, you know, what is the balance between um, how much information, how much data should we be surfacing to the individual? Is it better per person? Do you see, you know, what do you see to be the most successful uh, players in, in, in your experience? Well, I think the, the best player I've ever seen using information definitely is Ben Zobrist. Um, because, you know, as his as he ages, he, you know, he's 36 now. And as he ages and his kind of reaction time slows a little bit as we all get older, it happens. Um, he's really dug into understanding and using the information to his best possible benefit. And what he's told me about is that, you know, there's some times where he has to sacrifice the ability to do certain things to give himself the best possible chance of success. And it's a very measured and kind of reasonable approach. And we can't expect that out of everybody. Um, I think we need so we measure the game consciously. Right. We measure 
we measure it consciously, but we play kind of subconsciously. We play in that lizard brain. And so I always look at it now like we use the information to train the lizard. You know, like we're training, we're training the amygdala driven athlete um, to be able to do things like he thought them through in the first place. Like, like he used all that executive function that he didn't have time to use by training it and making it habitual. You know, we know that we're going to be emotional. We know that we're going to be stressed out. We know that we're going to be anxious. We know we're going to be freaked out. We know all those things. Um, We know that those things are going to happen. So let's train ourselves to, to a see them, like I said earlier, as kind of enhancing qualities, but also like, let's not run away from that. Let's not run away from, uh, from who we are as people and having this kind of acceptance. And, and that's another big part of mindfulness. If you think about, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment and without judgment, um, use it, use those things, use those things to your feelings, like how you feel in the moment. Like there is no replacing negative thoughts with positive thoughts. We're just trying to get back to neutral so that we can perform. Like that's who we are. Be accepting. And when, when you're in that meditation, one of the mistakes that I often make still is, um, I'll make a judgment about something while I'm like, Oh shit, I'm there again. I'm in the future trying to plan out three days from now again. Um, and then I'll go, damn it, I'm judging myself. And then I go, damn it, I just judged myself for judging myself, right? Like you could see how it, how it kind of compounds uh, when in reality it's like, I am nervous. Okay, I should be. Yeah, you see these thoughts, accept it and let it flow through, right? It's kind of like the- Just accept yeah. it, it's who you are, it's real. Yeah. Your emotions, they're real. You feel like, like, I think one of the biggest disservices that we've ever done to people is taught them that stuff like crying or something is bad or, or a sign of weakness. Like, no, it's not at all. It's not a sign of weakness at all. It's really actually how you feel. If, if, if you feel that, if your emotions are that powerful in the moment or that strong, like you need not to submit to them, but face them head on immediately and accept how you feel because that's, that's you as a human being. Again, so many times, um, I, I, when I was growing up, I wanted to, uh, run away, um, from those stuff it down, run away, push it to the side, not face it. But um, as I've matured, I've really realized that that's a, an, another way that you can kind of build these problems uh, that are that are foundational and in, in level kind of like their core underneath everything. And they'll start to uh, kind of they'll start to infiltrate all the things that you do, these doubts and stuff about yourself. If you're not willing to take the time to search inside yourself and find out not only what makes you happy, but what makes you emotional and face it head on and accept it and be positive about it because that's who you are. Uh, that's who you are as a person. And when, and, and that's really what we try to teach. This is our mental skills program is more of like a search inside yourself style course and training, um, than it is anything dealing with, uh, peak performance. And what we realize is that by, by helping these people become better thinkers, um, uh, better decision makers, um, that when they go out onto the field, like we know that they're fully prepared to play in the game, uh, and, and further too to separate themselves from their performance, you know, like you're a person first. We say it all the time. Tommy Lestella is a player in our major league team. That is the voice of that team, even though he's a young guy. And that is his main message to all those guys all the time is that we are people first and we're baseball players second. And if you don't nail the first part of that, doesn't matter how much money you make or how much success you have, when you retire with $170 million in the bank, you're gonna be miserable, and I see it all the time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we need this course taught to everyone. I'm just like hearing about the lessons you're, you're, you're teaching your guys, and I think 
everyone should be at some level having some of these skill sets. I mean, how to live, how to respond to stress, how to deal with challenges, how to deal with emotions. I mean, these are just fundamental human uh, experiences that we all face. Um, and it's not just elite athletes that you know, have these problems. All of us are dealing with our own shit. The athletes, they're magnified. They're just magnified as athletes because they have more publicity, more attention, and more money. But athletes are people. They're all regular people. You know, they're just they're just really intelligent in one specific area of life. You know, like you might be able to swim really fast. That doesn't mean that you're happy. Okay, it doesn't mean that you that you wake up every day like excited to go. I, I know a lot of guys that played baseball for 15 years that hate baseball. They were just good at it, and it crushed them. It crushed them having to go out every day. Like they would have had more fun in a van surfing all the time with four dollars in the bank than they would with a bunch of money and a bunch of fame and a bunch of notoriety. They would have enjoyed that a whole lot more. And um, now I would never tell them to, you know what, dude, just quit the contract, buy that van, go. Go, go, go drive down to Costa Rica somehow and go surf. I would never, I would never tell them to do that. Um, but I think in the long run, you know, baseball careers are short, uh, but we hope that life is long and let's, again, let's handle the person before we even deal with what happens on the field. Yeah. Right, what other aspects are you helping your guys at? I mean, it sounds like you personally have experimented with the ketogenic diet. I know that, you know, it has been interesting for you know injury recovery curious on the uh, on the things off the field um whether it's in, in your practice as a mental skills you know baseball operations or just personally well yeah so personally i um i i, I injured my knee doing jujitsu a couple of years ago um tore my meniscus bad sprains of all three acl mcl pcl in my uh in my knee and that kind of got me turned on to keto through kyle kingsbury i was listening to the joe rogan experience and Kyle was on there. I found out that he lived in the Bay Area, which is where I was living at the same time. I reached out to him on social media, and then we ended up having dinner together. He came over to the house. We cooked. Um, we did like a seminar for people um, on the ketogenic diet. He broke everything down for me from the meters he uses to kind of his exact processes to the things that he eats himself. Um, and I put them in the plan in my own life. And my first round of keto, I went eight months. Um, but five days or four days into ketosis, all of my knee swelling was gone. Like I never had any surgery to fix the meniscus. Um, didn't take a painkiller or an anti-inflammatory. Uh, I did it with food. And I was back on the mat about a week after being pretty seriously injured. You know, and this is how I caught for 15 seasons and 18 years. And I never had a knee injury or a knee problem. It wasn't until um, jujitsu that, that that happened because, I mean, that's yeah, a rough sport. You know, it's just organized roughhousing, basically. Yeah, um, it's a fight. Yeah, we're fighting each other, kind of, right? Um, and, and so that's what got me turned on to keto. And, and But then, so the, the, you know, the, the, the inflammation was going away was great, obviously, but really noticing how I felt. Um, something I've always been very thoughtful about is, uh, you know, when I eat, is the food that I'm eating, how do I feel afterwards? Because you know, this is kind of like the, anytime we can delay gratification, uh, there's usually some sort of a benefit to that. And on like this mini scale of delaying that gratification, whether it's delaying eating, if you're fasting or just over and over again, delaying, your, delaying eating, delaying eating some stuff that's going to make you feel like shit. That seems like it might taste good. Like I look at a donut now, like, um, like, like the, like the stereotypical kid looks at broccoli. Cause I look at that and what it's I think poison. about is a I'm like, man, it's a stomach ache. I, that's what I say all the time about alcohol. And I'm a sucker. I'm definitely a sucker for a good glass of wine or a good beer. Um, 
but yeah, like when you wake up, when you wake up that next day with like that rotten headache and, and, and weakness. And like, I always notice with my grip strength, especially like if I'm underslept and I had a couple beers, the, my grip strength has gone. And I go, man, I just poisoned myself. So I did last night. I, I poisoned, I, I consciously and actively knowing what it would do. Uh, I poisoned myself. And so one of the great side effects of eating ketogenically is that unless you're drinking dry farm wine, like all that alcohol is going to kick you out. And so it just goes away, just ended up going away. Um, and, and I feel great, uh, doing it. Uh, you know, some people that I know, they haven't had the same experience. Like my wife, for example, she doesn't do well on keto and that's okay. Um, this life is about figuring out what works best for you and trying as many things as possible. I can say that I spent, uh, after the China study came out, which I know has now kind of since been debunked. Um, but I read that book and I'm like, you know, I'm gonna give this a shot. So these people live till they're like 150 years old. I'm gonna eat all vegetables for a while. And after about six weeks, I quit because I felt like shit. I mean, awful. Like I was waking up exhausted. I was fatter. Um, my numbers were down in the weight room. It was an off season. Uh, I, I just, I'm like that. I can't, I can't do any of this. Um, but I, I, I've, I've learned over the years, I'm 37 now that I function so much better off of a lot of fat and a lot of vegetables than I do off of anything else. And, and we, uh, with the Cubs recognize two things, one, that fat is important. So we don't, we don't do any low fat, um, stuff with our players. We have a, you know, Don Blattner is fantastic nutritionist. She runs the whole program for our organization. Um, but you know, I go to Chicago and she sees me and the first thing she does is goes, Hey, can I make you a bulletproof coffee right away? She starts putting and we, and we have that for the players there. So if they want to have a, uh, if they want to have a coffee that has uh, Kerrygold unsalted butter and some, some high quality MCT oil in it, um, she makes it for them uh, before the game. And all of the food, we're very mindful about the sources. So even all throughout our minor leagues, we cater Whole Foods into um, for all our players to be able to eat high quality food. We're still on the carb train. Um, there it's offered, but now I've even noticed as I've been uh, through the last couple times this year, we've added gluten-free options for guys that have either celiac or gluten intolerances. Um, and you know, when you go to Chicago, it's it's grass-fed and finished steak, it's free-range chicken, it's local organic vegetables, it's we're killing a pig and roasting it and putting it at the field for the players to eat. It's the highest quality fuel to to, to serve these high-quality athletes. So. Um, I get to I get to be more like a cheerleader for the nutrition program when I go in and I go oh yes look you got you got jungle peanuts good job or hey look at all that wild salmon perfect like thank you I'm always I'm always hugging and telling Don thank you because every time I go visit the visit the Cubs in Chicago um, I, I, I I get to eat the best quality food sounds like and, you guys are so, eating well <laughs> so very as, well aspiring baseball players look at look at Chicago as a as, as a stop. Um, when you were eating keto, I, I'm curious, I mean, how were you measuring, how, how strict were you? Were you eating like, you know, close to 80% net, you know, percent fats in net carbs? Were you with your finger sticking to measure blood ketones? I finger stick. Yeah. I got a Nova max and the, uh, and the little ketone strips. Um, and my, I have a very, very easy, it's a very easy diet for me to follow. It's, I make, I make my coffee in the morning. Um, with you know two two and a half tablespoons of grass-fed butter. Um, right now, I've been using the uh, emulsified on it MCT oil because I just bought. It. I like the flavored oil like that gives it a little taste. Um, sometimes a little cacao, sometimes a little cinnamon, maybe a little cayenne. That's it. I put it in this thermos. I make a kind of a larger one. I put it in this thermos. That lasts me from about. Well, I'm still drinking and it's one o'clock. I'm sipping on. I sip on it all day. Um, and then I, I usually would test myself about three thirty or four. 
see how I'm doing. And if I'm really high, if I'm three and a half or four, um, then I'll let myself have some, you know, a handful of macadamia nuts and some butter. Usually I always try to put butter with everything to up the fat and in, fat intake. Um, so I'll do that. And then I'll have, I'll have dinner. And what I notice on, on the ketogenic diet is, you know, we'll make a massive plate of, of vegetables and I'll put a couple eggs on top of it, a little bit of cheese, maybe a couple blueberries to have that some of that. That sounds familiar kind of, to me. That's, that's, that's right? my go-to. Yeah. So I do that. And a lot of times I can't even finish it because I'm just, it's like I'm full, I'm satiated and I don't eat after that and I'm not hungry. And then, uh, you know, other times I will do, I'll forgo the bulletproof coffee, um, make sure that I have a little caffeine in me so I don't get too bad of a headache. And I'll try to see how long I can go before I feel like I'm really hungry. And I think people would be surprised. Um, you know, a lot of times with me, that'll be, I'll get hungry around four o'clock and just, I'll, I'll have eat, I'll eat my last meal at, I say the last thing I put in my mouth besides water was like, you know, eight 30 at night. And then I won't eat again until four o'clock the next day. And, and, and those, those times, um, I really kind of notice, well, my wife notices that she goes, uh, you smell, um, you know, like that starts coming out of me. Uh, and that's when I know, um, I'm really kind of actively using my own fat for energy. Uh, you know, I think it's hard for our, um, athletes because competing all the time, sometimes that I, you know, I'm not a nutrition expert. So, but I do think that that sometimes requires carbs. The demand requires some sort of sugar or carbs to be able to perform and recover. Um, so we're not fully, we're not fully keto with everybody, uh, there, but it's definitely something that's, that's discussed openly and not looked at as negative. And I think that if people are trying to kind of maybe cut some weight in the off season, it's a very good option. Um, a problem is when they come back, they've got to be very mindful of how they kind of recycle carbs back into their diet. So that they don't just spend all this time, get lean and then, you know, eat that again, <laughs> just eat cinnamon toast crunch for yeah. two weeks after that and blow right back up. Yeah. No, I think that's like, that's a good point that you bring up. I think there's a couple points that just underline is that I think a lot of people, when they think ketogenic diet, they think just like, I'm going to eat a ton of meat and you actually should be eating a ton of vegetables, you know, make sure you have the, the, the fat macro, right? Like have the eggs, have some butter or some, you know, oils in, in that veggie casserole, if you will. But you can actually get a ton of fiber and micronutrients from those veggies with those leafy greens and still be keto. So that's one thing I think that I'm glad you brought up because I think a lot of people are like, oh, I mean, are you just eating a bunch of steaks and pork and all that? It's like, well, you have some of that, of course. You need the protein and, and, and the fattiness of the meat, but also you can have a lot of veggies. And I think I've been eating a lot cleaner when I've been eating keto because, one, you're just a lot more thoughtful of what you can eat. Uh, and two, you can actually intake a lot of fiber as things that don't count as net carbs. Yeah, um, and yeah. eat the vegetables, man. Like that's like it's, like Hulk Hogan's been saying that for years. Take vitamins and eat your vegetables. But like that's a that's 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 I agree with you on that. Is that that's something that popped up for me? Is like when I started doing this a couple of years ago, I started eating five times the vegetables that I was eating before because you know when you think about like a traditional paleo diet, you look at your plate and you'll have a steak. And you'll have some green vegetables and then you'll have this big, I would always have a big portion of like sweet potatoes or something, right? You look at that plate and you go, Hey, it looks good, but I feel better if I remove the potatoes. Okay. Maybe put some sort of cheese and fat on top of the, uh, um, vegetables, make that portion the same size as the potatoes and then just cut my protein in half. I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need a 22 ounce steak. I'm good with four or five ounces of steak and a bunch of, and a bunch of olive oil, fresh olive oil on top of a salad. I'm much more satiated like that than I am if I go eat the 22 ounce porterhouse 
uh, and a baked potato, then I just feel, kind of feel like crap. Yeah. And I also think it's a good point that you brought up that, you know, carbs are useful for athletic performance as well, right? Like there's a role for carbs, right? You need it for anaerobic, heavy lifting, power movements. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the most recent sports science, sports nutrition is saying that, you know, some sort of cyclical routine, right? You train metabolic flexibility with, with your fuel sources, with your nutrition. So it seems to be like this nutrition is always an evolving field of inquiry. And it sounds like, you know, at the Cubs, sounds like you guys are pretty thoughtful around incorporating different eating protocols for different use cases. Yeah, man. We, everything's contextual. You know, everything is based on the person and the individual, what they not only what they can handle, but what they like as well. Um, and you have to you have to provide people with options so that they can experiment and find out the routines that work best for them. Right. I mean, if you're eating nutritionally to two, three, four millimole ketones, you're doing it pretty well. Because I know a lot of people that say they eat keto and, you know, test 0. 0.5 or less than 1.0. So you're doing it properly. I mean, good, good, well, good I don't stuff. Know. <laughs> I, I think it's just, I, I think the easiest way for people to do it is just drink bulletproof coffee, drink, make that bulletproof style coffee mix, and then just wait. Just wait. Like, how long can you go? Test yourself. How long can you go? You might not feel like you need to eat the rest of the day. That's fine. But that's, at least for me, how it's really kicked in. It's kind of the the combination of um, doing the doing the coffee and exercising. Well, I do my jujitsu practice is usually from about 10 to noon. So um, I'll even have my coffee at practice mat side. And when we have a little break, I'll take a big swig of water and a couple sips of coffee. And that kind of keeps me fueled for um, – or I feel like it keeps me fueled, that combination of caffeine and fat for the uh, for my practice. Yeah, tell me about the jiu-jitsu. I mean, I did a little bit of jiu-jitsu, so I'm actually a Stanford alum, so sounds like you went to the opposite side of the bay. So I, I actually was going to ask you about that. Was there any just sort of friendly ribbon between your parents and yourself? Because you said you're oh, a Cal. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, now, so the, the baseball coach at Cal, Dave Esker, is the one who really pushed me to go to Cal. I was going to UCLA. That's where I wanted to go to school. I got in there. I was going to go to UCLA. He called me ahead of time and said, hey, come walk on for this team. Try out. See how you do. Uh, and we'll give you priority registration. So I'm like, oh, well, Cal's a better school than UCLA is, so I'm going to go there. So um, ended, up, ended up at Cal. But, well, now that head coach, he left. He went to Stanford. He's the head coach at Stanford. So I went to Cal, but I'm a I'm definitely a Stanford baseball fan um, because I'm I follow just I'm following the coach. You know, I've been in professional baseball for for too long to to pick like any specific regional team. Like, oh, you were born here, you have to like these people. That's a stupid idea. Um, I like the people that have impacted me in my life. So you know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm an avid Stanford baseball fan now. So I was I was referencing Stanford because I was part of the Stanford Jiu Jitsu Club for a little bit. So just had, had a little bit of experience rolling around. So I'm curious, you know, as you transition from the active baseball career and going to Jiu Jitsu, uh, curious to hear your experience there, your thoughts. You know, was it a, was it a, a thoughtful like, hey, I've always thought Jiu Jitsu was an interesting combat sport, or was it through friends? Uh, how how did you discover Jiu Jitsu? In 2006, I had a really good season, made the all-star team in AAA, didn't get called up to the big leagues, and I was frustrated. I realized I'd never been in a fight, um, so, uh, and, I, and at the same time, it was like a perfect storm. I read Sam Sheridan's book, A Fighter's Heart, and he kind of does the same thing where he goes to Ivy League school, realizes that he grew up in this charm life, had never been punched in the face, he flies to Thailand, starts training in kickboxing, and does a professional fight at Lumpini Stadium, and then he writes a book about the whole experience. And I saw that, and I'm like, I'm doing that. Fuck that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get in a street fight. I'm going to get an organized fight. 
So I started kickboxing at this place called Caesar Gracie Jiu Jitsu in Pleasant Hill. Um, it was the closest combat sports gym to where I was living at the time. Um, and I, the first day I was there, I did the kickboxing class and then I showed up the next day at the same time thinking kickboxing was the same time, but it wasn't, it was grappling. It was no gi grappling. So uh, I got onto the mat and our instructor, um, at the time was a young black belt named Vinny Magalesh who ended up fighting in the UFC. In fact, he just beat Gordon Ryan at ACB, uh, recently, um, you know, Gordon Ryan, one of the best jujitsu guys in the world, right? Or most, most kind of notorious jujitsu guys in the world right now from, from the Danahar team in, uh, in Henzo Gracie in New York. And, um, Vinny just beat him and he saw that I was new and me and him were about the same size. I was a little bit bigger than him. And so I got treated like a grappling dummy for like 15 minutes. I mean, that guy choked me, arm barred me, leg lock, like everything. And I got done with that. And I knew in that moment that, when I was done, I knew two things that if I kept it up while I was playing baseball, I was going to get hurt um, because it's it's dangerous. People are tr literally trying to hurt you. Like, I'm I got sure it's locked. good cross training. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a sure. craziest workout. You're going to get hurt, right? Um, that's So I knew I couldn't do it then, but I always had it in my mind that this was something that I wanted to do in the future. And better then I stopped playing baseball. Kickboxing. Like you, 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 once you started rolling, this is more fun than kickboxing. Yeah, kickboxing, honestly, kickboxing was a lot easier for me. Um, I'm used to, as a catcher, I was used to having things fly at my face, so I really picked it up fast, you know? And a lot of the hip mechanics of kicking and punching are similar to swinging a bat and right. throwing. Right, torquing so, your body all the time, yeah. After about um, three weeks of consistent training, I was hanging with guys that were professionals in the, in the once, I, once I learned how to get hit in the face with my eyes open. Um, I was hanging with, uh, some of the professional guys. In fact, I almost took a smoker in California, like a <laughs> headgear fight. The ace found out about yeah. it. They were like, nah, you ain't fighting anybody. When I, when I first did jujitsu, I felt like somebody threw me into the ocean and I couldn't swim. And when I started doing kickboxing, I'm like, okay, I see how I could kind of be pretty good at this. Um, but I already have something that I'm good at. Like, I'm not looking for things that are, that's, that's, that are, that are easy, uh, climbs. I'm looking for, like what's the next Mount Everest, you know? And um, I was home for about two months after my career ended, just kind of hanging out and decompressing, and and you know I'm I'm just crushing my three-year-old and tic-tac-toe over and over again, like mercilessly, you know, and and talking shit to her. And I and my wife comes up, to, Megan comes up to me one time, and she's like, I think you need to find something to do because you know like you're working out, and I'm like, let's play Pictionary, and they're like. No, nope, no one wants to play any games with, with dad anymore because he's too aggressive trying to win. I was so used to competing. And that's the other great thing about jujitsu. I think that's different than all the other sports that you can find out there is that every day you go to the gym, you can train full speed and compete with somebody else. And, and I just, I so cherish those. I so cherish the fight. I so cherish like the, I, I love, I love, I love being in a place where I get beat all the time because it, it's something for me to constantly aspire to and strive to be like, I just don't like to do things that are easy. It's I've never liked it. I think it's the side effect of being a baseball addict and loving trying to practice hitting so much. And there's so many techniques. And the, like I said, the ocean's so, so, so deep. And I went from barely being able to swim to now, you know, three years in uh, a little bit over halfway through a blue belt. I'm, I'm still like barely treading water, you know? And I, and I, and I love, I love that about it. I love going out there and competing and it provides me the opportunity. Like I was talking about earlier, you know, if I'm going to work with you and you're a baseball player, or I'm going to be doing some sort of consulting work on the side and you're somebody that's trying to, uh, perform 
somewhere, right? How the hell am I supposed to relate, relate to you if I don't ever put myself out there? You know, you see so many of these coaches and, um, uh, kind of like internet celebrity, uh, experts giving people advice. And then, and then you look into their background and you realize like that, okay, that person who's telling you about how to think in competition, they don't fucking compete at all right. in anything. And they've done it. Yeah. Like, they, they don't know what it feels like to for, for your chest to be beating or, or for you to start doubting all your preparation right before it happens or for you to worry about all the people around you watching, you know, like they don't, they don't, they don't do that. And and how am I supposed to be authentically real to, to the players that I deal with all the time? It, it, now I can go up and I say, Hey, I know how you feel. Like I knew how you felt in baseball, but every year that I get away from playing, I understand that I am further and further removed to these guys. But every time I go do a jujitsu competition and come back and they want to talk about it, we get closer and closer again. We get, and it's in, and I can talk to them like the younger guys about, Hey, I'm a novice too. I'm a novice too. Like I'm a low intermediate level player in this. Like I'm in, I'm in jujitsu a ball right now. You know, I'm going to going to IBJJF tournaments and competing, um, as a, as a, as a blue belt in the master's division. Um, and I, I get nervous. I get nervous. I get scared. Um, I get worried. I, I, you know, like as we lead up to the event, like I have trouble sleeping. I have to, I have to worry about my weight all the time. And to be honest, I fucking love it. I love, I love drive. I, I, the last couple of times driving to the tournament being so worried. I'm like sitting there. I'm so happy because I'm like, Oh, there you are again. There you are. I feel you're alive once again. Um, and I don't know if that, I don't know if someday that thrill seeking kind of mentality, it might kill me, but, uh, I, at least I'll be happy when it happens. Yeah. No, I think that feeling, that emotion is, I think more people should experience it. So I don't, I, I won't claim that I have a lot of experience with it, but you know, I did a, a friendly boxing match, uh, last December and like, I, I think most people don't realize the intensity of someone like looking you in the eye trying to kill you right no. right and, and like i think once you live that you're like whoa okay like there's like a there's a there's a plane of existence where some things are just so crystal clear like okay someone in their eyes is trying to kill you you're trying to kill them too you're in a fight and something's like raw and 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 and, and, and sort of that, that that nervousness that energy that like i think more people should sort of tap into i think it's something that we all should sort of like understand at least a little bit that that part of human experience. I've 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 heard the same thing from a couple different um, MMA fighters that are done done fighting now from Kyle and then from uh, from, from Shayna Baszler. I went down and did some work with the WWE at their performance center, and I was talking about um, kind of reframing right, reframing the moment of stress to a positive. Oh, this is why we're here, right? And she pulls me aside afterwards. And she's like, I really, I really, uh, I really know what you're talking about. Um, she goes, that's why I stopped fighting. And I, in my head, I'm thinking, well, I got too much for her, right? Like she couldn't handle the stress. And she goes, you know, I was in the locker room for my last fight in the UFC and, uh, I wasn't nervous and I couldn't get my heart rate up and I didn't care. I wasn't scared. Um, and so I went in and I fought and I tore my ACL and everything kind of hurt and I lost and I just didn't, I just, it didn't excite me anymore. Um, and, and I'm like, Shana, did you just tell me that you were, you were like over it? Like you couldn't, you couldn't get up for a fist fight in a cage. And she's like, yep. She's like, the feeling that I'm looking for is not the feeling that you get when you're flying off the cliff to jump into the water. She goes, I'm looking for the feeling right before, right before it happens. And Kyle told me the same thing. He said his last fight was against Patrick Cummins was really like a great wrestler from Penn state. And he's like, he just kept taking me down, took me down, he took me down 11 times. And he's like, 
I was in the cage, he was on top of me and he was elbowing me in the head and my head was bouncing off the, off the canvas. And I'm like, this doesn't hurt. And I, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, you're, you guys are, you guys are savages. Yeah. Like that's, I, I can't, I can't ever relate. I can't ever fully, I don't think relate to that level of kind of raw authenticity that it would take to do MMA or even in your case, boxing, like at my age now, like I have no interest in getting punched in the yeah, head. No, that, that like, it's like a one-time gig. I mean, that's some brain damage. I, I, I can see how kickboxing is a smart thing to, to stay too uh, far away from. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're just taking, you know, blunt, blunt force trauma to the face again and again and again. But I think it makes sense that, you know, you're, a couple of your friends, like, I think once you don't have that edge of wanting to kill and be killed, I think God, you got to hang it up. I mean, another person's trying to kill you. Like you're going to take yeah. some damage. And I don't even think they were so concerned about the other person. You know what I mean? It was just for them, their experience was like, oh, this doesn't stimulate me anymore. This is not enough. Um, and I need to go find enough in a different, uh, a different avenue or a different facet of life. And, and both of them, man, like both of those people are doing, I think because of that recognition, like, and I think we should point out too, like the self-awareness of both of those people is incredible to me. Like to recognize that it wasn't for them anymore in like that healthy of a way and to go out and find them, both of them are successful. You know, Shana's NXT women's champion in, in, in the WWE. She's working working her tail off to get to the main roster, which I think she will be on soon. And, you know, Kyle went from kind of aimlessly wandering around to the director of human optimization at, at Onnit to this massive advocate of plant medicine. Um, uh, and people are finally getting to experience his personality. Um, and it's it's fantastic for me to see because he's one of the people that um, in so many, when I have a question about anything kind of, uh, biohacking or, um, uh, life optimization, or, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's something, something having to do with plant medicine for my own personal use. Like he's the person I go to immediately. I send him a text message right away and he's just so much insight and so much information and such a great person to, to be able to learn from. Oh, this is a wonderful conversation. So how do our listeners follow you? You know, what other, any upcoming events or projects? How do they find you on social? What are the things to shout out? So I, well, if you can find me on social at, um, let's see, on Twitter, it's at ManBearWolf. Uh, so it's, it's a shout out to uh, an old, old South Park episode um, about Al Gore. Uh, but I couldn't do Man Bear Pig. And I have got, that was my first three tattoos that I got. One was a, one was a bear, one was a wolf, and one was a man. So they added together kind of in that South Parkian way to make that, uh, to make that handle. And then I'm on Instagram at cjohnlearn. Um, uh, and I'm just kind of actually getting used to Instagram. I never really used it before. I'm realizing that I have to kind of go out and do things like this so that I can develop a kind of a side business. And my partner and I with the Cubs, uh, a guy named Darnell McDonald, um, he's embedded in Chicago for us. He's at every home game. Um, he is a, a former major league player that is also a yoga instructor now. Um, and we work closely together on and off the field. And we have a company that we're building called Satyaya Sport. Um, Satyaya is the Sanskrit for uh, self-study. Hmm. And How so what we're trying that? to, yeah, that's the problem, right? That's that's our problem. It's S-V-A-D-H-Y-A-Y-A sport.com is the website that we're building right now. It's up. You can find us on 
on Twitter and on Instagram at those same handles. I think that it would be much better for us to change the, uh, the URL to our website, which we will be doing soon. Um, but what we're trying to do is provide the things that we do for the Cubs. We're trying to develop a way to just get that to the general public. And at first, all the content will be free. Um, we're going to post some guided meditations up there. Uh, and then there's contact information if anybody wants to actually reach us out, reach out to us and bring us to either their business, their team, uh, their company. We're happy to come in it, unless you're in professional baseball and you're not with the Cubs. Like that's our we've, we've gotten the blessing of Theo Epstein. Yeah, we've gotten the blessing of Theo Epstein to go out and and spread this word as much as possible. I mean, he hired all of us. He believes in these programs. We have this uh we, have, we, we live in this great progressive place where we're constantly looking for the newest and best information, uh, the newest and best practices. And so what we really want to do is be able to take the things that we're doing, because like we said, like I said earlier, this isn't just about high performance. This is about life. And how can we take if, if we can if we can leverage um, our kind of notoriety with the Cubs to get this into more people's hands, then we feel like we're really making impact on the world in a positive way. And it's more about that than it is anything about us making money or having a business. We're really just trying to get this message out because we believe in it so much. We live it ourselves. We live it with our families. I mean, I could take you on a tour of my house, but one of the rooms here is there's no furniture. It's for meditation. We have meditation poofs and, and Buddha heads and a fireplace and candles. And, and it's where my family spends a lot of time uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, just making sure that we're working on modulating our own attention and focus all the time so that we can use it as best we can. Um, and, that's where you can find us, though. I think that the easiest way for me to reach out is reach out to me on Twitter at ManBearWolf or um, on Instagram at, at CJohnLearn. Uh, and I'm happy to answer questions and interact with anybody. I love spreading this message. It's so, like I said, it's so valuable to me. So whoever I can get it to. Uh, and again, for you, thank you so much for having me on um, and for providing a platform to get some of this stuff out. And I hope that somebody out there, if just one person benefits, then I'm happier than I was yesterday. All right. Well said. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Stubbs, to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to you know, what's going on at Human. You know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers? What are the feedback from the Keto Nester? Happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast@human.com, and we'll, once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast@human.com and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.